I don't know if you've noticed how impossible it is to live without hope. Everyone develops hope in something. Everyone has some belief about the future. We're observing that people need hope. They need a promise of a future. And this is a problem because we all pass away. We all die. But to go on living day by day, we have to believe in the future. Because almost everything we do today depends on some belief about tomorrow. And this is universal. There's not a human being in the whole wide world that doesn't need this, that doesn't need to trust himself or herself to some promise of the future. Everyone needs this, and so we all make something up to fit the, that so that we keep getting out of bed every day. The belief in some afterlife is nearly universal. And even among people who say that they don't believe in any kind of afterlife, still need some promise of a future that extends beyond the end of their own life. Some idea of a legacy that they leave, of uh, making some sort of permanent change in the world, or at least in their own family, or among their own loved ones. And so everyone operates in some kind of hope. People who lose their hope always become suicidal. There's no point. And of course, this life that we live in is full of suffering and trouble. So if there's no future for which I strive, I quit. Everyone operates out of hope. Christians operate out of the hope that will not disappoint. We trust not just some nebulous idea of what the future might have, 
we trust the one who holds the future. We trust the one who has promised us certain things. So here in the book of Hebrews, and we're in chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 17. Here in the book of Hebrews, we've been learning a few things in the last several weeks. First of all, we've learned that God is trustworthy because God is true. God is true to himself. So what he declares... He does. If he makes a promise, he keeps it. He is true to himself. In fact, all of his promises are agreed upon and promised among the three persons of the Trinity in eternity past. They say, let us, let us, make man in our image according to our likeness. And the very plan of our salvation from sin was determined in a mutual promise among the three persons of the Trinity before the foundations of the world. And so they're not just keeping their promise to us. In fact, that's sort of a side effect of their faithfulness to God. And so God is true to himself, and God is good. It takes both of those things for God to be trustworthy. He's true to himself, and he's good. Now, he's trustworthy in a certain sense, even if he's only true to himself, even if he were not good, he could be relied upon. But he is good. And so he's not only reliable, he's trustworthy. We can trust him because he is good. Now we know that God is good because of Jesus. We might not otherwise know that God is good. We might guess that God is good apart from Jesus, but we know it because of Jesus. Because God himself became flesh, dwelt among us, gave his life a sacrifice for sin, rose again, and ascended back to the Father where he sits at the right hand of the throne of God and constantly intercedes on behalf of his people before God before the justice of God. And because God has demonstrated his goodness, his love for us in the person of Jesus, God is completely trustworthy. And we've been learning this. God has made surpassing promises to those who trust him. Surpassing promises, they're not just promises. They're the best of all promises. They are far and away better than any other promise that anyone might trust his future to. 
He is, his promises are surpassing in their magnitude, in their glory, in their greatness. Promises like immediate reconciliation to God because of the sacrifice of Christ. We had a enmity, a, a, divided, a division, an alienation from God in our fallen condition. And Christ has resolved that through His sacrifice so that now we have access to God Almighty at any time, from anywhere, about anything. An access that would have been deadly to us apart from the cross of Christ. So God's promise is that reconciliation and that constant access to the Father, the provider, the, the source and authority of all things, to the Father in the Son by the Spirit. And so the very triune God works in us to put us in the very presence of God Almighty at any time and at all times. So that I can pray about anything that's on my little head. I can ask for wisdom, or I could ask for a million dollars, or I could ask for healing, or I could ask for a smooth meeting today, or I could ask for whatever. I can stand before God and pronounce my desires freely and without reproach because the Lord in Christ makes me acceptable before God at all times. And not just acceptable like, okay, he can come in, but acceptable like, yeah, come on in. What do you need? So I can pour my very heart out. I can walk in intimate fellowship with God, the Creator. Have you looked at the creation? You can look up or you can look in. Whichever way you look, it's unbelievable. It's so vast and so rich. And I can talk to the one who made it all about whatever trivial matter is on my mind on any given day and receive a warm welcome as his child. And that promise is the promise of access that we have in Christ. Another promise is the perfect provision at all times. That one, I, every time I say it, I go, can that really be true? But that is what the Scripture says. My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches, according to His 
riches in glory. Well, how rich is God? All things rich. All things. And he has said to me and to you, to any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will provide all your needs. And Paul writes that not about some specific thing that we got to reinterpret because of the context. He writes that in his thank you letter to the Philippians where he says, you know, I've learned, I, thank you for your gift. They sent him an offering. He says, thank you for your gift. Not that I really need it because I've learned how to get along with wealth and poverty, with a full stomach and, a, and going hungry, with a nice warm place to lay my head at night and a shipwrecked boat at night. I figured out how to be happy and content, satisfied, whatever my lot. This is the same place where he says, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. All these, really, I'm doing fantastic in worldly terms. I'm doing horrible in worldly terms. Either way. And in that very same chapter, he says, and my God will supply all your needs. So if you need to be shipwrecked in the middle of the night, he'll supply that. If you need to go hungry, he'll supply that. If you need to experience poverty, he'll supply that. Oh. You see, God's concept of what we need is richer than our concept. God's idea of what we need is a bigger idea than mine. And so we learn to trust this promise. God has promised if you need it, you have it. That's a great promise. That's a surpassing promise. That's a hard to fit into your head promise. And then finally, he's promised us resurrection to eternal life. <laughs> resurrection to eternal life. Death is not the end of the story. Death leads to resurrection for those who trust in Christ, and this is his great promise. And, you know, Jesus told us what eternal life is. This is eternal life, he says in that great high priestly prayer in John 17. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see... Eternal life is not just about how long it lasts, it's about what it is. It's not just life that lasts forever. I can imagine getting bored if this life lasted forever. Though I would prefer it to the alternative. But the thing about eternal life is not just how long it lasts, but what it is about, and what it is about is exploring the great character, nature, creation, uh, fellowship of the living triune God. It's about exploring the nature of the cross and the resurrection. The 
incredible reach of God to redeem sinners. I imagine we'll spend a good bit of time just kind of taking role in the eternal state. Wow, I didn't know you'd be here. You either. How'd you get here? There's only one answer to that question. It's always the same answer. The, the glory of the risen Savior. And we can say that and act like we know what we're talking about. But the glory of the risen Savior will take you all of eternity to figure out. Oh, all of eternity, that means you never figure it out. That means every day when you wake up, even though you're not really going to be asleep, but every day when you wake up in the morning, you're going to see something new and amazing about God, the triune God. So even in the new heaven and the new earth, hope remains. Because you're always going to say, I wonder what I'm going to find out tomorrow. This is so great. And from there, you'll see something else. And from there, you'll see something else. And maybe you'll explore the nature of the physical world in which we will dwell. And how it has been transformed by the work of the cross. And maybe we'll all become amazing scientists or maybe we'll explore the, the depths of music and art and see all kinds of new forms of beauty and create new forms of beauty out of what we see. This will never become boring because it's not this life extended. It's life in the real, actual, immediate presence of the living God at all times. And I can say that, and I don't actually know what I'm saying. And these are the surpassing promises of God. People who trust God persist in following. <laughs> That's another thing we've been learning here in the book of Hebrews. People who trust God, people who know this God that we're talking about, people who know this God, hope in this God, persist. They don't get diverted into some other hope. Like... Maybe we can escape the problem of persecution. That's what the Hebrews were contemplating. Maybe we can find another reason to get up every day that won't get us killed by the Romans. Well, not if you know this God, you can't think that. Because you know if you know this God that getting killed just brings resurrection. So you can't desert that in order to escape this. 
people who trust God persist in following Jesus, and they do so exhibiting a radical, sacrificial love, like he did, like amazing. He trusts God. That's why he goes to the cross. He goes to the cross for the joy set before him, the joy of that fellowship with the Father that includes our redemption. Jesus goes to the cross for the glory of God, not just for your salvation. He's the supreme one, not us. He serves us to serve him. And he trusts God's promise of resurrection. How do you know he trusts God's promise to resurrection? Well, because he didn't take the devil up on that deal the devil gave him. Hey, you can skip all that. Just, you know, come with me. He doesn't. Why? Because he trusts God. He prays in the garden if there's any other way, but your will, not mine. Your wisdom, not mine. And he sticks to the promise of God, the promise of the resurrection. And Hebrews, right in the very next chapter, says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So people who trust God persist in following that. And so we engage in the same kind of radical, sacrificial love, especially in our fellowship with one another in the body of Christ. We take care of one another. We become a family together with people we might not even like if we were just out in the world. And we are willing to give of ourselves for the benefit of someone else especially the benefit of seeing God in Christ. Now, this behavior, this trusting behavior, this sacrificial loving behavior does much good in the world and causes much trouble. It's really what got Jesus killed because the people who killed him didn't understand that killing him was just one more of these. And he said, nobody takes my life, I lay it down. And so when we behave this way, we look crazy. People don't always like being loved by the love of Christ. They sometimes find it disturbing and off-putting. The gospel, Paul writes, appears foolish to the unbelieving mind. People who trust God can go without immediate comforts, all the immediate comforts of this world, to pursue life with Jesus and his people. Faith sticks with Jesus. It doesn't mind the shame of sticking with Jesus. Hmm. Those are the things we've been learning up until now. Maybe we should get to today's message. (laughs) They died 
in faith. Who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And now we add to the list Joseph. They died in faith. That's a way of saying when they died, they were believing at the time in, in God and in God's promises. Now, let's just read this text. By faith, this is Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was, it was he to whom he was called. It was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, which, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Things to come. Things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons, each of the sons of Joseph, and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus to the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. <laughs> what do you do with my body when I die? Well, let's look at these four guys. Abraham offered up Isaac. Now, who's the one dying here? That's Isaac. This says, <clears throat> by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, tested. You know, the scripture says in James chapter 1, consider it all joy, brothers, when you fall under various tests, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what it produces. Abraham's faith was tested. Now, here's the thing about God's testing of faith. God tests faith that is faith. And God tests faith in order to produce faith. And when your faith is tested, it's stronger faith. And when Abraham was tested, he obeyed. He offered up Isaac. Now, it says here, he who had received the promises, received the promises. And what was the promise? In Isaac, your descendants shall be called. You recall that Abraham and Sarah went through this, this problem where they figured they needed to keep God's promises on God's behalf. So Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, and they had a son, Ishmael. And God says, no, that's not what I meant. What I meant was, in Isaac your descendants shall be called, the son born to you and Sarah, the son named Laughter, because when I said she would have a son, Sarah laughed. 
Isaac means funny, laughter. Well, that's the promise. And then God comes and says, now, take your one and only. And this is the same term the New Testament uses for God's Son, the only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus. You're only begotten, he says. Give him back. That's a pretty serious test. And doesn't killing Isaac cut Abraham off from this promise? In Isaac? The the promise had a name on it. Isaac's name. You know, death seems insurmountable to us. God just says, offer up Isaac. Abraham gets up the next day, says, we're going on a trip. I think on the trip, this is all getting explained to Isaac. And Well, at not at the end of the trip, because Isaac says, where's the lamb? In the story, Isaac says, where's the lamb? I see we got the fire and the blade. Where's the lamb? You know what Abraham said? God will provide for himself the lamb. Oh, man, it's like reading the New Testament. Well, anyway, what the Hebrews tells us is that Abraham reasoned that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Because God said it's Isaac. Now God's requiring the sacrifice of Isaac. But God will keep his promise. And so, how will he do that? Well, I guess he's going to have to raise Isaac from the dead. That's how. God's promises to Abraham imply resurrection. All of them, by the way. Because People in this world live and die, live and die, live and die, and yet we're promised that we will live in this land. Land. People, uh, spiritualized people don't need a land. Resurrected people live in a land. Well, anyway, Abraham believes God's promise. Death doesn't cancel the promise. So Abraham's faith extends beyond death. Now, you can read this story in Genesis chapter 22. And when they get there to the place that God has designated, Moriah is the name of the place, and they get there. And Abraham, there's servants with them. And so Abraham, they all, you know, they get off the donkeys or horses or whatever. They're going to walk from here, and Abraham says to the servants, wait here. We'll be back. So when the writer of Hebrews writes, Abraham thinks God can raise Isaac, he really thinks it. He told the servant they would both be back. And the offering of Isaac is a whole burnt Offering, there's nothing remaining after that. 
But Abraham says, we'll come back. And Abraham gets right up to picking up the knife, and God says, wait. And God provides a substitute. And so Abraham calls the place God provides. And so we have the name we use for God, the name of providence, the name God provides, Jehovah, Yahweh, Yairah, provider God. What does God provide? The sacrifice that God requires. God requires a sacrifice, but God provides the sacrifice that he requires. So Abraham offered up his only begotten, and according to this text, he received him back from the dead at, in type. Now, this is Isaac operating as a type, a, a, a vision of the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Isaac is as good as dead and comes back. This is a picture of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, a type of Christ himself. God provides his own prophet, his own promise. Whatever God's promises require from you, God provides. God provided Isaac miraculously. There should be no Isaac. God makes Isaac from two people who can't do that. And God provides the, the, the substitute for Isaac. Abraham believed beyond death or he would have never gone for the knife. Abraham's hope operated. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau as he was dying. And that's the story where Jacob, Israel, Jacob sneaks in and obtains the blessing that Isaac intended for Esau. All in the promise of God because the line of the promise goes through Jacob and not Esau. Jacob's very name means con artist, trickster, deceiver. Well, he certainly lives that out. And Jacob is Israel, the chosen people of God. And God says time after time to the nation of Israel, you know, I didn't pick you because there's anything special about you. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. If we were around in those days, we would have all liked Esau better than Jacob. And Isaac did too. But he blessed Jacob and Esau when? When he's dying. And the blessing is about the promise of God. I think there's probably no other kind of actual blessing. Well, then Jacob, Jacob 
blessed the sons of Joseph when? As he was dying. You remember the story. Joseph saved Israel, Jacob, and his other sons from the famine in Egypt. Joseph also is a type of Christ, but that's not the story we're looking at today. But in any case, when Joseph, when Jacob was dying, he blessed the sons of Joseph, his grandsons, giving them equal status with his other sons. You know, Jacob also demanded that when they returned to the promised land, they take his body with them to be buried in the promised land. There's an implication of a hope beyond death in that act. And Joseph, when he was dying, did the same thing. The same thing. He blessed his descendants. And he mentions the exodus in his dying days. That's specifically mentioned in our text here. Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. We are going home. The homeland, the promised land, Joseph mentions. And he's serious about it, and he says, and he gave orders concerning his bones, take me there. You see, Joseph counted himself a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt. Really, next to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. But when it comes to his dying day, what nationality does he claim? Not the worldly power of Egypt, but the obscure, unknown kingdom of Israel. The promise of God. He sees beyond his own life. He is not seeking the comfort of his earthly home. And that's the exhortation here in the book of Hebrews. We've gone over these three things before. Trust in the promise of God. Continue in faith to the end. Jesus said, I will raise him up. That's the word of God. If you have come to Christ... If you have come to Christ, he says, I never turn anyone away. If you're looking to me for your standing before God, I receive all who look to me. I receive all who look to me. And he says in the very same text, I will raise him up in the last day. Who is the promiser of your resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the forerunner of resurrection. So we are called in the book of Hebrews to trust in the promise of God that extends beyond our own lives. 
And we're called upon, secondly, to confess that we are strangers and exiles in this present life, in, on this earth. We're looking ahead. We're looking beyond what we see in this here and now existence. We have a vision that goes beyond our current situation in this world. And so we are called upon to confess our hope, to hold fast the confession of our hope, to look beyond something in the last week and something in the coming week is going to bring difficulty to you. It might be big. It might be small. It might be trivial, but it will be hard. And we, the people of the living God in Christ, by the Spirit, look past it. See something more. See that this situation is enclosed in a bigger situation that is full of the promise of the living God. And so these troubles we endure. We live knowing the future promise. So the current difficulty isn't such a big thing. We're still looking ahead to the promises of God. We're still looking for the new city that this book of Hebrews says God has prepared. We're just waiting for the arrival. And finally, if we trust in the promise of God and we confess our hope in the promise of God and we rest in the hope, in the hope, in the comfort of our promised home. Not our current home, our promised home. Our current home might be hard to rest in. Our promised home is eternal rest. We don't seek the comfort of an earthly home. We seek the comfort of the future earthly home in the resurrection. And so, because we trust, confess, rest, we live as someone who holds the promises of God. His goodness, his providence, his resurrection. If those promises are true, if God is faithful and will deliver on those promises, it changes everything. It changes how I see other people. It changes how I behave in this world. It changes what I'm willing to do and not willing to do. It changes who I will associate with. It changes what I will do with my things. It changes how I will behave. It, it makes me truthful even when being truthful might cost me. So I trust in the promise of God. I confess my hope in the promise of God. I rest 
in the future home God has promised to me, and that makes all the difference in how I live. How do I relate to my family, my spouse, the church, the community? Changes everything. I don't need to look out for myself because he's promised to look out for me. And if I don't need to look out for myself, I can actually love you. Even if you're not worth it. I can love you with no particular expectation about what you will return to me because I've got it all anyway. And so they died in faith. You also should die in faith. You might not if the Lord comes before you get to that point. But when you get to that point, you still have the best promises of all promises to be looking forward to even in that moment when the world sees only the end. Father, we thank you for your love, for this grace in Christ. Lord, we pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that our vision of the Lord Jesus would be clear and true. That we would walk in the newness of life that he has provided. That we would pray without ceasing. That we would always take advantage of this access that you've granted to us and that he has given to us and that the Spirit has awakened in us. Lord, we ask that in this life we would be great demonstrations of this ridiculous love, this sacrificial generosity. And Lord, that we might be true exhibits of your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.